The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Good evening, Tom. Fine, thank you. And you? Good, Father. Thanks for being here. Oh, Appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank God we can both be here. Definitely. Father, I thought we could start tonight with this uh, recent happenings in Ireland where they had this referendum where they voted on the uh, the abortion issue and it passed overwhelmingly. I believe the numbers were 66 to, to 33 percent in favor of this uh, abortion referendum. So, Father, do you have any comments, any, any comments on this? Well, to put things in perspective, Tom, um, in 1986, uh, by a, a similar margin, but with a totally different outcome, a, uh, an amendment was passed for the Irish Constitution, which essentially gave the legal status of personhood to the unborn child. It was a, an amendment to the Irish Constitution in which the Irish populace voted <clears throat> roughly a two-thirds majority right, to acknowledge the personhood of the unborn child and to say that the unborn child's right to life was equal to the, to the mother's right to life. And so, by law, the unborn child was entitled to protection as much as the mother's life was. Now, this was 1986. So how, here we are in 2018, and the vote has been reversed now by two-thirds to one-third. The Irish population have voted, has voted to repeal that amendment. And in the process of, re of repealing the amendment that the previous generation had put in place, they're basically, <clears throat> basically essentially re repealing the personhood of the unborn child um, and uh, leaving them uh, fair game for abortion. It's a very evil thing. Uh, one might ask, and one should ask, what happened between 1986 and 2018? What happened? Well, there are actually those who are saying that the bishops of Ireland basically ruined, that they destroyed the consciences of the Catholic people of Ireland. That's what, that's what people are saying. For example, there's a uh, gentleman who's a, a pro-life leader, John Smeaton, of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, who's written, and this article appeared in LifeSite News, uh, actually just uh, yesterday, May, May 29th, was when the article appeared. Uh, it's dateline actually May 28th. And the headline is, Pro-Life Leader Explains How Catholic bishops destroyed the Irish conscience. And he goes through the timeline, basically, the development from 1986, and explains the various attempts of the pro-death, pro-abortionists to attack that amendment, and how the, 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 the Novus Ordo bishops of Ireland reacted, and the message they sent to the Irish people and ultimately, the message that they sent to the Irish people is basically, well, vote your conscience. So, of course, in terms of moral leadership, they, they were less than, than worthless. Uh, essentially, when you tell somebody vote your conscience, what you're really saying to them is, we really don't know. There is no moral absolute. There is no moral standard that you have to conform to. So decide what you want to do. You decide what you want to do. Of course, all over Ireland, there was the vote, yes, 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 you know, say yes, for abortion, right? Mm -hmm. Who knows how much Soros, George Soros money was pouring into Ireland and the, the pro-death uh, abortionist position to support that and to get a yes vote from the Irish people. But according to this uh, gentleman, John Sweeten, of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, he says it is really the Novus Ordo bishops of Ireland to bear the responsibility for what has happened here. And uh, the perhaps millions of deaths that will follow as a direct result of the vote of May 25th in Ireland. 
Um, he actually points out that it's not only the lives of the Irish children that will be destroyed in the womb in Ireland, but he says there is an enormous amount of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, follow through in this vote. It's going to have an effect uh, on the pro-life effort and the pro-abortion effort throughout the world. And uh, the entire world was watching this vote to see what the Irish would do because it was considered to be not only a rejection of the pro-life position, but a rejection of Catholicism. I mean, they equate that. The Irish are rejecting their Catholic, their Catholic faith. They're rejecting the Catholic Church, essentially. Now, it's kind of ironic that you have a man like this, who, um, from what I can tell, clearly has the faith. And... Um, yeah, he's, he, they're interpreting this as a rejection of the of the church by the Irish, but attributing the rejection of the church vote by the Irish to the bishops of the church that they rejected. Right? And they basically tell them to go follow your conscience. This actually fits in very well with Francis. Okay, uh, Maurice Letizia, where he talks about um, you know giving communion to those living in open adultery. He, he is basically attacking the very idea that there's anything that is intrinsically evil. And uh, Francis is one of those who's teaching this, this error, this terrible moral error of the supremacy of the individual conscience. Not in terms of determining whether the person is guilty or not, but even in terms of, of deciding what is right and wrong. Even laying down the rules, contrary to God's own commandments, that the individual has the right in his conscience to veto God's commandments and say, well, okay, fine, that's what divine revelation says, I don't see it that way, my conscience tells me differently. So essentially what they've done is they've already made the, these people moral Protestants, in a sense, that each one will decide for himself you know, what he makes of the moral law of God and how he wants to keep it. And ultimately, whether he keeps it or not, isn't going to matter anyway. And uh, that sounds like a rather sleeping comment. But the fact is, uh, one of the Irish bishops, and this is another Life Said News article, entitled Irish Bishop, says Catholics who voted yes to abortion should go to confession. And uh, this is an article by Dorothy Cummings and McLean. Dorothy Cummings McLean. This is also, this is dated just uh, May, May uh, 30th, Dateline May 29th. It appeared on the website May 30th. But she is referring to this, this bishop, Kevin Doran, Doran, D-O-R-A-N, Bishop of Elfin, as saying that the Catholics who voted for abortion should go to confession. But when she asked him, well, what should they go to communion? His answer was, well, let their conscience be their guide in that. And his point is, well, we, we tell the people, follow your conscience, follow your conscience. So he's, he's actually invoking that mantra again of the modernist Novus Ordo. That everybody has his own, well, I mean, it, it is modernism time because modernism says that everybody has his own personal religious experience, which gives rise to his own personal faith. It's a corollary that, you know, everybody has his own morality, too. Derived from his own religious experience of the divine. So everybody follows his own conscience. So this man is taking it a step farther and saying, well, if they voted their conscience in voting for abortion, well, then they should decide with their conscience whether they should go to communion or not. So again, the message, there are no moral absolutes. There's no absolute, yes, right or wrong. And uh, this is the destruction of all faith, as St. Pius X said, modernism is the destruction of all religion, all true faith, ultimately the destruction of all morality. And um, again, you know, you have a, a nation of bishops uh, of the Novus Ordo who are modernists, and according to uh, this one pro-life leader, John Sweet, they have destroyed the consciences of the, of the Irish Catholic people. Sure. This vote was proof positive of that. And Father, you mentioned how monumental this was and how the whole world was watching. 
Where was Francis on this matter? Did he even make any comments at all uh, before this happened or, or after this happened? Did he even make any, any remarks at the that's, that's a very good point. You know, I, I, Father, actually, I saw... Well, short, I was going to mention that, and I'm glad you did. I, I saw a short video online. It, it was titled uh, something along the lines of, of Francis's video message to to the Irish ahead of the abortion vote, and you click on it, and it's the sound of crickets chirping. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's where, it. Where was he? That's it. He was AWOL, okay? <clears throat> but his silence thunders. His silence thunders, okay? Because he was, well, the, the principle as that was brought up by St. Thomas More when he was contemned, we touch it, touch it, the one who is silent consents. Okay? And so <clears throat> Francis's silence was consent to what they were choosing to do. This follows exactly what John Sweeten says the bishop's approach was. Actually, John Smeaton's Society for the Protection of Unborn Children was one of those who opposed a previous effort to loosen the abortion laws in Ireland. And after that effort failed by a narrow vote, the bishops attacked him and attacked his Society for the Protection of Unborn Child Children for opposing the loosening of abortion laws in Ireland. The bishops attacked him for that, the Novus Ordo bishops. So this is why he's pointing out that basically, he's not saying it in so many words, but as far as the unborn child goes in, in Ireland, they are the enemy. And they have done more damage than the dollars of George Soros, uh, the political wrangling of all these people. They've done more damage to the Irish conscience in taking away their will to stand up for their faith. You know, um, the polit leading politicians in Ireland who, who actually were, were voted in by the Irish people, uh, many of those leading politicians were pro-life. They were on record as being staunchly pro-life. They all caved in. Every single one of those leading national politicians, Barad Carr and the rest of them, they all were campaigning, were pushing very hard for this the destruction of that amendment, the rejection of that amendment, protecting the unborn child. And the question came up, why would these men, who had spoken so powerfully with the pro-life message before, campaigned on this, on this platform, and basically pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for, to, to protect the unborn child, why in a case like this, when everything is on the line to protect that amendment, there was historic granting, it didn't say it in so many words, but effectively what it did is granted the personal status to the unborn child. Why would they, why would they turn? Why would they so not only uh, just quietly turn, why would they so radically turn and be so vehemently in favor of this, uh, this, this pro-death, pro-abortion measure? And the answer was because they wanted to be in good with the powers that be in Europe, and they were not. They, they were looked upon as being backward and, um, what should you say, uh, kind of um, retro, retrogressive, not progressive. And um, no matter what else they could, did, no matter what, what other interactions they had with the other leaders of state, they feared that they would always be treated as though they were somehow... Um, you know, old-fashioned and uh, out of step with modern society and the modern world and should not be taken seriously. And the first thing that comes to mind is Pontius Pilate. You know, as soon as they laid the charge against him, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. You know? mm -hmm. And you know the effect of that. Well, these men, according to some observers of the Irish political scene, they say that's what actually swayed these men maybe women too, but the men are the ones I'm referring to, to change their tune, not just change it. They, they reversed it, they inverted it, they subverted it, they perverted their, everything they said before, and they came out 100% in favor of this uh, yes vote to take away the legal protection of the unborn child. Uh, this is a betrayal of, 
unfortunately, I'm afraid, everlasting proportions for these souls. Mm -hmm. uh, because the tragedy is not only the lives lost of the children, it's also the souls lost of these, these traitors. Why is, it, why is it that time and time again, we see this in our own country too, we, we, we elect people, the people choose those who have a real solid message, or at least, you know, they, they seem to get it. They may not even understand the principles, but at least as far as the practice, they seem to understand what's necessary. And as soon as they get in office, it's as though they, they drink the hemlock or they, they drink the Kool-Aid. And uh, you, you wouldn't even recognize them after that. What is it? Is it political power that has done this? Have they sold their soul in order to gain this office? I don't know. But you'd get the impression that these, these men did in Ireland. Sure. Father, how stunning is this, this fall of Ireland? You know, just recently, I believe it was 2015, when they had the, uh, the so-called homosexual marriage referendum that passed overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly as well. And now we have this abortion referendum passing. And it's, it's so stunning. You know, Ireland used to be the Isle of the Saints. There, mm. there was more Catholics. Land of saints and scholars. There, there was more Catholics than people in Ireland. And now, all of a sudden, we have this where, um, like you said, the whole world was watching this, waiting. And now it seems that, that Ireland is leading this, just uh, <coughs> turning away from the truth. And I think, Father, this is what happens when there is no moral leadership. You know, the Catholic Church has been for for 2,000 years, mankind's moral leader, and now we don't have that anymore. What we have in, in Vatican is, in, in the Vatican now, it's just a, a farce. There's no moral leadership anymore. Well, unfortunately, and, there is immoral leadership. leadership. Okay, Francis is giving leadership, but his leadership is totally destructive of morality. Francis is actually attacking the very principles of morality, not just the individual and let's say, practices of morality. He's laying the axe, as St. Pius X said about the modernists, laying the axe to the very root of faith, the very meaning of faith. Well, Francis is laying the axe to the very principles of morality of the church. And so you, you get this with the Irish bishops, who are totally in tune with Francis. Right? He's silent. They're talking. And what they're talking is pure modernism. It's up to the individual conscience to speak for himself. And knowing what they're telling the people is, do what you want. Right, but, but wink, wink, we know this is what you should do. Okay, they were actually implying that the right thing to do was to vote in favor of yeah. this, is what they were doing. And the Irish people are not dummies, they got the message from the so-called bishops. And um, they, they, are, uh, they are moral leaders, but the trouble is they are moral leaders who are um, the wolves and not, and not the shepherd. You take away the shepherd, right? And what do the wolves do? Turn everything over to the hirelings. Okay, and that's what, he, that's what Francis has done. That's what all the Novoserto, all the Novoserto so-called popes have done, okay? Uh, the, the heads of the Novoserto church after Vatican II have basically promoted hireling after hireling after hireling. Oh, I know, I know there'll be those who say, oh, wait a minute, there's this bishop so-and-so, and he says we shouldn't be giving communion to the, to the uh, pro-abortionists. And there's this bishop so-and-so, and he stood up and he said something really good about, you know, uh, <laughs> deviant marriage or something. But when it comes right down to it, they will not, they will not do more than whimper every now and then, offer a little whimper here and there. No matter if I'm forceful at least, huh? they're not going to back it up. And to stand up and thunder and to insist this is wrong and I will not, I will not be a party to this. No. Why? Because they're organization men. That's why they're in there. They thought Archbishop Lefebvre was one of those. That's why, they, that's why they promoted him, because they thought that he would be one of the gang. And they made a mistake. They didn't factor on the graces that he received and the graces that he would respond to. And, um, I mean, where were all of those others? The, the others, in fact, who voted against the, uh, the document on religious liberty at Vatican II, you know, Bishop Segoda, the Amatina at Brazil, and so on. Where were they after Vatican II? <clears throat> to stand with Monsieur Lefebvre, he was practically left to stand alone. You know, the rest all became very silent, right? Because they're organization men. And they found that they just had to go along. Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, when you, when you become a bishop, you have to be basically, you have to accept the role of a prophet. 
you have to be like a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel or someone like that, who is willing to tell the truth and nothing, nothing can silence you, nothing. But, uh, you know, it seems even the best of these Novus Ordo bishops is incapable of standing for anything, sure. really, when the chips are down. They all manage to cave in and, duck and run for cover. By the way, <clears throat> from a very uh, fine uh, gentleman, uh, Jorge, we have here, uh, the preamble to the Irish Constitution. And it's very, very revealing. I understand that this is actually still the introduction of the preamble to the Irish Constitution. Even now, after they rejected that Eighth Amendment, that this is still the introduction to the Constitution of Ireland. In the name of the Most Holy Trinity, from whom is all authority and to whom, as our final end, all actions, both of men and states, must be referred. We, the people of Ire, humbly acknowledging all our obligations to our divine Lord, Jesus Christ, who sustained our fathers through centuries of trial, gratefully remembering their heroic and unremitting struggle to regain the rightful independence of our nation, and seeking to promote the common good with due observance of prudence, justice, and charity, so that the dignity and freedom of the individual may be assured, true social order attained, the unity of our country restored, and concord established with other nations, to hereby adopt and act and give to ourselves this Constitution. <coughs> They're dedicating their Constitution to the service of God, Acknowledging the Most Holy Trinity, the very first phrase in the name of the Most Holy Trinity. And now this is what this is what it's come to now. No wonder, right? No wonder there is talk about St. Francis saying that he would if, if Ireland defects from the faith, he would wish that God would simply destroy it. And because no wonder there's a prophecy that when Ireland loses the faith, it will simply uh, simply disappear into the sea. Mm -hmm. Under the waves of the sea, Father. In regards to that, to that prophecy, um, what is your interpretation of that? There, there are those who say that uh, that it will literally disappear into the sea under some some sort of, of tidal wave will wash it away, or there are those who say that it's not a little. We shouldn't have a literal interpretation of that, but rather that there will kind of be this this tidal wave of, of sin and error overcoming them. And there are those who say that what we see happening now with the uh, abortion and the homosexual deviant marriage and all of this, that, that actual, that, that tidal wave of sin and error has actually started overcoming mm -hmm. Ireland as we speak. Well, if the prophecy was figurative, I mean, you have to remember in terms of uh, sacred scripture, the pagan nations were regarded <coughs> uh, and sometimes referred to as like the sea, even though the nations were on dry land because of the turbulence of the, 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 the pagan nations and their unsettledness and their, their uh, uh, they resembled to the people of Israel like they were surrounded basically like, like, like a sea of paganism. And so it could refer to this sea of sin and sea of paganism would engulf Ireland, okay? I find it hard to believe though that St. Patrick would have been so figurative or the prophecy would be so figurative as to stop there. I mean, I, I interpret the message for what it's worth to be that if Ireland is engulfed by sin and paganism, retaken by paganism, that the, there would be actual physical, geophysical consequences, that the island would actually be reclaimed by the sea. And that's what I expect. I expect there will be a cataclysm at some point where Ireland actually will be reclaimed by the sea. It could be a tsunami. Uh, I mean, you, know, you talk about earthquakes, uh, undersea earthquakes, uh, generating enormous waves. I don't know what the elevation of Ireland is. I mean, I know they have some mountainous regions, but the, um, you know, we, we see around the, the world even now a, a, a resurgence of geothermic activity. We see in, in Hawaii what's going on right now. 
uh, we see in uh, the Madrid Fault, which even goes right through the Midwest, we're seeing a, a west, we're seeing um, tensions rising in the soil under, under even, what is it, uh, Yellowstone National Park and the- Supervolcano. Yeah, I'm talking about the supervolcano there. I mean, there are a lot of reports about um, the, the Earth physically being under great stresses right now. We're seeing a resurgence of activity in the Pacific Rim. We're talking about Hawaii. So, um, not long ago, I, I mean, just a, a generation ago, maybe, no, not even that, we saw Mount St. Helens blow, right? And that was a relatively mild eruption, right? Uh, there have been much more violent eruptions. And, um, uh, and you look at the devastation that followed that. You know? So you realize, you know, we're kind of sitting on a powder keg right now. But rather than make people think that uh, they'd better uh, mind their, their matters before God, their reaction is quite the opposite, right? It's almost one of just a real cynical, diabolical defiance. But that's part of the, that's part of the diabolical disorientation. Our Lady, Our Lady prophesied at Fatima. And to have a diabolical disorientation, you have to have a diabolical deception. And that diabolical deception we see going on, it's not only going on in Washington, it's not only going on in London, it's not only going on in Berlin, in it's going on in, in, in Rome, in the Vatican right now. That's the real diabolical deception right now. Sure. Well, Father, if we could, thought, uh, we could get to a couple emails real quick. Our email inbox is overflowing as usual. So a quick one here, Father. Uh, I was baptized in 1973 in the Novus Ordo. I'm thinking I should get a conditional baptism. What do you think? I also heard that in the new baptism in the Novus Ordo, they are using any other oil instead of olive oil. Well, I can't vouch for what they're using for the uh, the holy oils in the Novus Ordo. I Nothing would surprise me, you know, I mean, you could be using Crisco oil or whatever, someone suggested at one point. Um, I don't know that it really makes a difference to most of them, anyway. Um, I will say this, the Novus Ordo rite of baptism has changed. Uh, they eliminated the four prayers of exorcism in the rite of baptism for children, you know, and some people might think, well, why would you have exorcisms for a child? Are you saying the child is possessed? Well, those prayers of exorcism actually come down to us through the centuries. The, the rite of baptism, the traditional rite of baptism, comes down to us from the very catacombs. You know? um, even the, um, the Apostles' Creed is understood to have been, in some quarters anyway, the profession of faith for one, a catechumen about to be baptized. And to this day, I mean, the, the, the Apostles' Creed is prayed before the water of baptism is poured. Um, the, the prayers of exorcism were eliminated by Paul VI, as you know, in the early 70s. He then apologized for having taken them out, but he never put them back in. So this is the craziness, the, 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 the strangeness of things, that he admits it was a tragic mistake and that he never fixes it. And so no wonder people are thinking there's something that's totally out of control here. This something doesn't make any sense. Uh, even from a common sense point of view, even not from a religious point of view, it doesn't make sense. But in any case, so there are things that this, this gentleman or lady would not have received in the traditional rite of baptism, would not have received in his RCIA, right, rite of Christian initiation for adults if he was baptized as an adult, or baptized as a child. There are things in the tr traditional ceremony that would not be there, that he would not have received. But as far as the validity of the baptism, I mean, what is necessary for the validity of the baptism is someone pour natural water, some pour real water, and uh, generally over the forehead, or, or one could sprinkle it or one could immerse somebody in the water. Right? There's infusion of spirit, expression, and, uh, and so on. But, uh, but in any case, the... Um, 
they would also have to not only pour the water, they have to say the correct words, identifying what they're doing. And among the various traditional rites of the church, the words are not identical, but they all express the identical understanding, sacrament. And uh, they have to have the intention to do at least what the church does. If this was done when this man, I'll call him a man, uh, I don't know if it's a lady or not, was baptized, uh, then that would be a valid baptism. If the water was poured and the person uh, spoke the words, even a layman could validly baptize who had the necessary intention of at least doing what the Catholic Church does. Um, now, I mean, if, if any of those was missing, if any of those was lacking, if they used uh, Dr. Pepper or they used, uh, uh, you know, coconut oil or whatever, that would be totally invalid, right? There's no question about the validity of that. Um, if they just poured it over, let's say, a lock of hair, right? Um, and it didn't actually touch the body, well, that would not be valid. If um, the um, words expressed were ad-libbed, uh, that so that they didn't express the, the significance of baptism. The signification of the sacrament of baptism is the cleansing of the soul from original sin. If they excluded that intentionally or simply failed to, to express the very idea of baptism, then, you know, that would make it invalid. If the person who poured the water and said the words prior to doing so said, we don't believe in original sin anymore, forget that, we're just making him a member of the club, wink, wink, you know, welcome to the club for it. If that's, if that's the significance of what they did, that would totally invalid to me. So, um, but I mean, if, if the individual, um, you know, could be, if anyone was certain that they had the intention to do what the Catholic Church does, and they did pour the water and they, they said the words, and the Novus Ordo, Rite of baptism, the words are, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, that's the formula. And it, it deviates from the traditional form in the, in the Roman rite of baptism by adding the word, Amen. If one actually added the word, Amen, for a heretical reason, it would invalidate the, even that, you know. But how do you know? You know? Well, I mean, you'd have to, I guess, interview the person. Well, why did you do that? <laughs> but uh, all in all, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, I mean, even if you added something to the form that did not alter the meaning substantially, um, and you didn't intend a substantial alteration, it would still be valid. So whether this person should go off and have himself validly baptized, I would say this much, but he, but he could certainly do is go to a traditional priest and say, I was baptized in the Novus Ordo. Could you at least supply the ceremonies? And would you also be willing to help me investigate to make sure that what was done was right and proper? Give me a, a good, solid judgment as to whether my baptism was valid or not. Sure. And the priest might then, the traditional priest would say, okay, this is what we need to know. Go try to find this out. Find this out from documents, go talk. If the, if the, if the clergyman who did the baptism is still alive, you can ask him, you know. Uh, go to the godparents, find out exactly what was done. They're there for a reason, right, as witnesses to the baptism. And um, go look, you know, if you have somebody who videotaped the ceremony, the old VHS tapes, whatever, right? There, there, there's a certain amount of evidence that one could explore mm -hmm. to get satisfactory evidence. In the end, I mean, if there's, if there's a lingering real doubt, a positive doubt, as to whether or not the baptism was valid, then I think a traditional priest would um, be, would take the pars tutsior, be cautious and say, well, a conditional baptism is in order here. And during that time, we can also supply the ceremonies that the Novus Ordo left out. Sure. Okay. Next question, Father. Is fighting temptation by indirect means instead of active means, such as ignoring a temptation versus actively trying to push it out of one's mind, is that permitted? That is to say, is ignoring a temptation instead of actively fighting it considered resisting said temptation? Yeah, sure. Well, no temptation can have any power over it unless we give it our attention. 
The most effective way to deal with the temptation is to ignore it, to refuse to allow it to get our attention. So, especially with the temptations to impurity, I mean, that's really the only way to fight it. People who, who make an active attack, you know, attack on the thought or the suggestion are basically focusing their attention on the idea, and that's fatal. The, the real um, uh, defense against uh, temptations, especially temptations of impurity, are precisely flight in the sense that we get away from them. But the most effective way to get away from them is to absolutely refuse to think about them. And we have to not uh, focus on them saying, no, 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 I will not think this, I will not think this, because in the process of saying, I will not think this, I'm thinking this, right? I'm still focusing on it, but I'm not thinking. So the important thing is that a person just completely turn the direction, redirect his attention away to something else. I mean, you're not going to find a void in anybody's imagination. The mind just keeps running. There's something in there. See? So, again, he can't just be thinking, I'm not thinking this, I'm not thinking that. What he needs to do, he needs to make a deliberate choice to direct his attention elsewhere to something else. Something important. Something uh, really, really crucial to him, so that it, 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 it is such a, a, uh, a, a let's say, a, a, a thought of such force and strength to him, of such importance to him, that it crowds out the this, this suggestion. Whether it's a suggestion to, uh, you know, commit a sin of impurity, a suggestion to steal, a thought of doing violence to someone, you know? Um, the best, the best, um, the best and most decisive rejection is to say, I will not even give my attention and just immediately fill one's imagination, fill one's mind with the thought of something else that just crowds all of that else out of there. He, he cannot... There's no room in his mind anymore for those thoughts. So yeah, so passive, if they want to call it passive, it all requires an active decision, you know, but actively deciding no to the, to the, to the, the very idea of the temptation, that's the most active decision you can make. And, uh, but if we, you know, I understand what he means by being passive about it, and that's just refusing to cooperate with it in any way. Okay. Father, what is the sinfulness of doing something that is bad for one's health in a minor way, such as eating unhealthy food and the like? And how does that relate to the saints who harm their bodies as a form of penance? To do what now? How does eating... So, the, what is the sinfulness of doing something that is uh, minorly bad for one's health, such as eating unhealthy food and the like? And how does that relate to the saints who harm well, their bodies as a form of penance? Well, I don't know that they eat unhealthy food. Well, like he gives the example of, of uh, uh, self-flagellation and just the saints who performed bodily penances. Okay. Well, the saints would see that if they had a particular vice and they could overcome that vice by mortification, um, that they saw value in that because, you know, our Lord said, what, what is the benefit of going into, into eternal life missing a hand or a foot, you know, but saving your soul? There is benefit to that. He says, what is, what is the benefit, rather, of going into you know, hell with both hands and both feet and, and both eyes? Because they're just going to suffer in hell, right? So he said you'd be much better off going into eternal life without these things than going to hell with them. And, you know, the saints would take, take the Lord's words very seriously and very earnestly and very literally, okay? Um, but the church has always taught that if they, if they use these penances in such a way that they actually do physical, they, they actually injure their health, they do something that actually um, uh, destroys their health or impairs their health, that this is morally wrong. The church sees that as a sin against the fifth commandment. 
So they can mortify themselves, but the church has always made it very clear if it crosses the line where it becomes the point where actually it damages your health, you have to stop. Okay? <laughs> so, I mean, someone may whip himself and so on uh, just to, uh, in a sense, inflict that uh, pain and discomfort on himself to humiliate himself in his own mind and humble himself before God and steel himself against, uh, against adversity and against temptation. I mean, St. Francis, uh, Francis of Assisi um, was a very passionate man. He had a very hot temper. He got that under control. But he was also at times tempted. He would not become a priest. He stopped it at a deacon because he thought the purity necessary to become a priest was beyond him because he was still subject to temptations of purity. And he would actually spontaneously throw himself into a snowbank or Whatever it was, I don't know, in the system, how much snow there was. But he'd throw himself into a, into a thorn bush, you know, uh, as a means of just fighting off a temptation. Uh, that was very effective, I guess. He found it very effective. Because once you, when you do that, all of your attention is given to the thorns that are piercing him. And this is an example of, you know, the, of his turning your attention away from the temptation. Um, but, you know, Tom, the whole idea. It's just part of human nature. We have boot camp for our soldiers to toughen them up against adversity, right? Uh, I mean, we, we, we have survival training uh, where we put people through, the, you know, terrible discomfort and, and, and uh, trials, and we even uh, toughen up soldiers in some cases for capture. In case they were captured and they were interrogated by the enemy, we want them to be really, really tough. This is not something that is just a matter of saints. This is, this is what we as human beings realize we have to do by mortification in order to strengthen ourselves, strengthen ourselves for the duties we have and the dangers we have to face. So, um, uh, but I mean, the, the fact is, it all comes down to the fact that it's to make one stronger, not to make one weaker. It's to ultimately, you know, help one. Uh, not to, to hurt a person. And so if, it, if, if it's done to the point where it damages the health, it's, a, it's sinful. Okay. The church condemned it. Okay. Religious superiors have always made that very point. When a, when a, for example, a religious in a religious community would want to undertake a certain penance, <laughs> they have to get permission to do it. And they might be given leave from their confessor or whatever to do it for a certain time in moderation, but they had to report back. If it got to the point where it was excessive, uh, they would be commanded to stop. And they would, in conscience, have to stop. Hey, if they didn't, they'd be shown the door. They, 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 they would say, you're, you're not suitable to be religious. If the mortification that you're inflicting on yourself that we see as excessive and damaging your health, if that's either feeding your pride, making you think you're really special, or it's damaging your health, and you won't stop, then the mortification of obedience that you really ask for, you will not give. Um, this is this is damaging your soul and your body. Mm -hmm. Okay. Father, uh, this viewer says, I have read writers who say it is easy to make a perfect act of contrition, and I have also read writers who say it is difficult to do so. Which is it? Who are these writers who uh -huh. say it is easy to make a perfect act of contrition? Not sure. A perfect act of contrition is motivated by a perfect love for God. A perfect act of contrition is sorrow for sin, a hatred for sin, which always includes a firm purpose of amendment, refuse to, to sin anymore, to avoid the near occasions of sin, stay away from the temptations, rejecting even the temptations. A love, a love for God that is required to accomplish that has to be perfect. It has to be what our Lord says is to love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, and thy whole strength. That's the first and the greatest commandment. Now, how can one say that that is easy? It's a grace from God. God has to give that grace. And we have to cooperate with it. We have to overcome self-love. So, First of all, God has to give the grace for that perfect love for him. 
And it has to be the efficacious grace, too, that overcomes all of the obstacles that we have in the way, all of the other attachments we have in life, and even to life itself, if necessary, like the martyrs. Right? Now, how anybody can say that's easy. I mean, they might as well claim, well, you know, St. Sebastian getting uh, put to death, that oh, was easy. You know, St. Cecilia, what she went, that was easy, you know. It just sort of came naturally? No, no, it's absurd. It's, it's even heretical to say it came naturally. That perfect act of love for God has to be the result of a grace that is earnestly sought for. We, we beg God for that grace. And uh, it's, it's a supernatural act of charity, mm-hmm. supreme charity. So um, how on earth anybody could say that's easy, I don't know. Okay. You know. All right. Is it permissible to ask for purgatory in this life so as to avoid purgatory after death? What are the consequences if, assuming it is permissible, God grants this favor? St. Augustine said it. He said, St. Augustine said, slash, burn, do whatever you have to do to me in this life. Only save me, spare me in the next. That's what he said. Oh, yeah. To want to fulfill one's purgatory here in this life, which means simply, I want to, O Lord, expiate and make retribution for all of the temporal punishment due to my sins. And I I really want to do that in this life. Now, one might say, okay, well, I'm doing that selfishly because I want to avoid purgatory, because I realize that no matter what I suffer in this life, it can't compare with the pains of purgatory. One might say, okay, that person is motivated by self-interest, okay? It just so happens, by the way, that that self-interest coincides with God's will, though, okay? Because God doesn't really, because God doesn't want people to go to purgatory. Uh, He didn't create them for purgatory. He created them to go to heaven. So if they can expiate the sins uh, that they've committed in this life in terms of the temporal punishment due to their sins, uh, that's a good thing. Right? We all should aspire for that. We all should want that. If somebody says, my God, when I die, I don't want anything to stand between me and thee. And uh, I, want, I want to go straight to heaven, to thy presence. I want to love thee with all my heart and soul. Um, this is motivated by my love for thee, that I long for thee, my God. That is, you know, approaching in the direction anyway. It's going in the direction of the perfect love for God, saying that's my motivation. And uh, I want to take away all the obstacles in this life and in the next in order to go directly to God. That's a holy thing. That's what we all should be doing. All right. Uh, Last question, Father. On indulgences. When we get a partial indulgence, I understand that this means we are remitted partially the punishment due to sin which has been forgiven. Is that punishment that we are remitted partially only due to sins which would be punished in the next life or also in this life? Uh, The partial indulgence granted by the Church or through the Church or the Treasury of the Saints is granted uh, with regard to punishment for the temporal, temporal punishment due to sins in the next life, in the next life. Okay. Right. I'm not sure I understand if the individual is saying, gee, when I get the indulgence, does that mean I can be relieved of punishment that I would have to endure either in this life? Yes, like, so you have a parenthesis uh, while on earth, say, in the form of suffering. So is that punishment that we are remitted partially only due to sins which would be punished in the next life, purgatory, or also in this life while on earth, say, in the form of suffering? Well, I mean, I guess one could say, okay, I'm getting these indulgences, and I'm asking God mercifully, right, to apply these to the temporal punishment I I will have waiting for me in purgatory. But if I can now expiate them, then I I don't have to expiate them in other ways here on earth. So maybe it will affect the fact that I don't have to do other penances to expiate those sins because of the indulgences I gained. 
if I didn't gain the indulgences, I might be thinking, okay, I better expiate my sins some way while I'm still alive on earth. If I gain the indulgences, I might say, well, I've already, you know, kind of relieved, alleviated my suffering in the afterlife here in purgatory by gaining the indulgences, so much indulgences, uh, that are already applied to that suffering, so I don't have to fast uh, on bread and water for six years as I would otherwise to alleviate my sins because I gain the indulgence. But I would say that one who thinks like that is already in, in trouble. Because if they're motivated by a love for God and a true desire out of love for God to expiate their sins, I think they have to realize that, you know, I, okay, I gained an indulgence of, of seven years or seven quarantines or whatever else. Um, that the time, there's, there's no time in purgatory the way we know it here, okay? The only time in purgatory is a matter of change. The philosophers define time as a measure of change according to before and after. Well, there is a change in purgatory, but the change in purgatory is the expiation of the temporal punishment and the purification that the souls love for God. So there is a change in purgatory. In that sense, there is a passage of time, but it's not measured in seconds or minutes or hours. Phase. But, you know, any, any reasonable person who understands what's at stake here would have to say, well, look, during my life, I scandalized maybe a half a dozen souls. Maybe I scandalized a half a dozen thousand souls <clears throat> using foul language in the presence of children, uh, failing to fulfill the duties of my state of life and giving scandal that way. Um, who knows, involving other people in my sins, uh, in one way or another. I mean, all of these, I have all of this and the consequences of what I've done. I've gone to confession, I've told God I'm sorry, and I was sorry, and I am sorry, and he forgave me. So there will not be temp the, the eternal punishment of hell for my sins because God has forgiven me. But it's interesting, if you read sacred scripture, especially the gospel, you find how seriously God takes not only the sins committed against him, but the damage we do to the souls of others. How many times our Lord told us uh, about the responsibility we have for the example we give and the damage we do to the souls of our fellow men. And God is holding very, very... I mean, our Lord even told us the parable about the, the servant who was called in who owed the king 10,000 talents, and the king forgave him. But when the man went out and began to choke one of his fellow servants who owed him much, much less, I mean, just a pittance, the king was angry that the man, not that the man didn't have the 10,000 talents to take him back, but he would treat his fellow servant this way. And he handed him over to the tortures for that. So God has made it very clear, if, you have your, if your brother had anything against you, if you've been guilty of an injustice or a lack of charity for your brother, you've sinned in that way against him. You bring your gift to the altar to give to me, don't give it to me, I don't want it. You go make things right with your brother and then come and offer your gift. I mean, our Lord has told us in so many ways, though Peter forgives 70 times seven. You know. Our willingness to forgive and our willingness to endure hardships in this life is very important to our Lord, right? And uh, so we shouldn't be surprised if even after we're forgiven by God for the offenses we've committed against him, and he has remitted the eternal condemnation, the sentence of eternal condemnation against his soul because of his mortal sins, he still holds us accountable for the damage we've done to each other. That's the temporal punishment to his sin. I can go to confession for my sins, but I can't go to confession for the sins of the people I've scandalized. You know, the damage is there, right? That temporal punishment goes with me. Now, if I'm motivated by a love for God, I'm going to be saying to myself, oh, look, I got this indulgence, I got that indulgence, I got this indulgence. Hey, it's taken care of. If I think about the gravity of the sin of scandal and what our Lord says about scandalizing, even especially innocent souls, so it'd be better than doing that if you were taken out with a millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown overboard. You're better off doing that than causing scandal. 
I would be thinking, I cannot do enough penance in one lifetime. I cannot gain enough indulgences in one lifetime. Right? If I appreciate the gravity of the temporal punishment, the amount of temporal punishment to, to my, my sins, even my venial sins. Um, so um, I just, I, I see where the person is, is going with that question, but I also see, well, we've got to be careful even in answering that question to stress where, where our mind should be and how we should be thinking about this. Right. Not thinking, well, I either gain the indulgence or I, I fast, you know, once, once a week for five years. One or the other, you know, which is it going to be? Actually, if you're thinking like that, you should say, I'd better do both. Sounds good. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. I know you have a very busy schedule, so we all appreciate your time very much. I'd like everyone else to. I'd yeah, like you. That's true. No, I know you all have. Uh, you're all working very hard. God bless you. And uh, God bless all of our, all of our uh, patient listeners there. Mm-hmm. I certainly appreciate that. I'm glad you got to some of the questions here. Yes, Father. You know, there's just so much going on right now. Uh, I do ask your prayers. I'd like to. I'd like to mention this too. There's a gentleman in England who um, is a political prisoner of the English Crown right now. His name is Tommy Robinson. Okay, he has been trying to unmask and cover, uncover, and keep the English people informed about this cabal of. Uh, Islamists in in England who have been uh, kidnapping and grooming the English children, girls, for their immoral trade. This is their business over there, okay? Um, and in some parts of England there have been literally hundreds of girls who disappeared and have been sold by this, this gang of Islamists. And this man has been trying to let the English people know what's going on. He was given uh, some kind of a suspended sentence at one point. And just recently now, uh, because he was quietly filming on his own cell phone, uh, outside the courtroom, where these men charged in this trafficking of these, of these English girls uh, are being tried, uh, he was seized by the police, taken before the magistrate, and in a matter of hours, he was he was uh, sentenced to 13 months in in prison. And knowing the prisoners that he's going to be uh, locked up with, this may well be a death sentence for him. His name is Tommy Robinson, and the courts in England have ordered a complete news blackout on this whole thing, so that. In England, here in the United States, we can talk about it over there they can't. It's a crime to talk about it. It's a crime to even talk about him and what, what happened to him. Uh, the, the news is being blocked out as though this man has just been carted off. I mean, even in Stalinist Russia, they didn't do any worse than that. Even in Stalinist Russia. But this is what it's come to over there in England right now. Alfie Evans. Alfie Evans, right? And uh, in the British Isles now, uh, uh, the immorality that is, that is being voted on and approved there, and this man being carted off into oblivion and basically uh, devoured, swallowed alive by the English prison system. Uh, so that people are not even being informed where he's being held. Um, it's, it's just incredible. But this is what... Uh, well, this is what totalitarians do. This is what traitors do to their country. They, they silence those who expose them uh, in, in the most cruel ways. So, you know, this is what we see going on right now, and uh, we need to pray for this man, that uh, he be protected where he is, and that uh, somehow around the world there have been protests. People are beginning to react, and that's, that's an amazing thing after all this time. People are not only beginning to react, but people are finding out that people are reacting. That news is getting out, in any case. It always seemed as though either people could not be informed, or if they were informed, they didn't care. And so uh, we're finding out more and more there's still some, there's still some moral indignation 
left in in some people because there is still still some moral principle left in people. Uh, we have to pray for that. I'll tell you though, it is it is purely by the grace of God. Whatever liberties we still have right now, purely by the indulgence and the grace of God, after all the sins that are hurled in His face day after day after day, and our Blessed Mother in Heaven, you know, pleading for mercy for us. Our Lord pleading for mercy for the, the altars at the true Mass, the traditional Mass. Um, you know, all of these are, are speaking for us, uh, pleading for us. We, we have so much to be grateful for. But what we have to do is, if we really appreciate the mercy of God, let's show that we appreciate it by standing up for what is right. And, um, and this means we have, to, we have to practice our traditional Catholic faith courageously. We can't just be try to be silent partners, as it were, with God. Uh, we have to be so in, so inspired by our faith and, and hope and love for God uh, that we cannot be silenced. We will not be silenced by any tyrant, not from hell or not anywhere here on earth, that they do not have the power to silence us. But it comes to a matter of faith, open charity, and it comes to a matter of right and wrong, being faithful to God. Thank you, Father. You're welcome, Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.